1: Welcome back to New Books in Native American Studies. I'm Jeremy Wood, and thank you for listening to this podcast with the New Books Network. Each episode, we pick a new and exciting book in indigenous scholarship and spend an hour speaking with its author. My guest today is Dr. Cole Thrush, associate professor at the University of British Columbia, located on unceded Coast Salish territory, and an affiliate of that university's institute for critical indigenous studies. Dr. Thrush's new book, which we'll discuss today is Indigenous London, Native Travelers at the Heart of Empire. In this book and throughout his scholarly work, Dr. Thrush seeks to dispel the notion that indigenous history and urban history are somehow at odds by retelling the stories of our cities through the eyes and voices of the indigenous people that have experienced and shaped them. Dr. Thrush first turned this methodology on my own city, Seattle, in his 2007 book, Native Seattle Histories from the Crossing Over Place, where he looked at the intersection of three histories that of the local native Duwamish people, that of indigenous migrants to the city and that of the conceptualized Indian in the imagination of white urban city boosters. Native Seattle won the 2007 Washington State Book Award, and an article based on one of its chapters, City of the Changers, was named Best Article of 2006 by the Urban History Association. Dr. Thrush is also the co-editor of the volume "Phantom Pasts, Indigenous Presence, which looks at how ghost stories in North American culture speak to to memory of the colonial experience. He's also published articles on contact between settler and indigenous ways of knowing through the mediums of food and geological science in the Pacific Northwest. Dr. Thrush's new work, Indigenous London, out from the Henry Rowe Cloud series on American Indians and modernity from the Yale University Press, looks at that colonial contact at the heart of colonial empire in the city of London. This book reframes the metropolis and its history through the experience of indigenous people who traveled there, willingly or otherwise, from territories that became the United States, New Zealand, and Australia from 1502 to the present. In doing so, he reconceptualizes the center of the British Empire as a periphery of the indigenous diaspora, where indigeneity and urbanity consistently mingle. While London provides a particularly acute example of that mingling, his work challenges all of us, indigenous and settler, scholarly and lay, to re-look at our urban spaces, both within North America and outside as points both within indigenous homelands and a greater indigenous diaspora. On a more personal note, Dr. Thrush was my professor during my undergraduate studies at the University of British Columbia. His methodology, his insights, and his mentorship continued to challenge me to see greater indigenous presence in the spaces that we live and inhabit. Without further ado, Dr. Cole Thrush. Thank you so much for, for agreeing to this interview, and welcome to New Books in Native American Studies. Yeah, you bet. Um, so before, before we get started, so as I, I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to be talking about your, your recent book, Indigenous London, Native Travelers at the Heart of Empire. Um, before we mm-hmm. do that, can you just tell our audience a little bit about... Um, what what brought you to history, to indigenous history, and what brought you to to write this book?
0: Yeah, sure. Um, I think, you know, the the story I tell myself about how I got started in all this is um, growing up in a border town. I grew up in a town adjacent to a reservation, the Muckleshoot Reservation, which is in Washington, about an hour from Seattle. And it, it was a really intensely segregated place. And It seemed really clear to me that there was a really big story going on there that nobody was willing to talk about, or at least not in the community that I grew up in. And my temperament is such that if there's a story nobody wants to talk about, that's what I want to talk about. And so um, that kind of moved me into studying this stuff. And then as a university student, I did a lot of coalitional politics with um, indigenous students. And that kind of got me interested in the politics of all of this. And that led me to graduate
1: school. Um, yeah, I'm curious, from from that position, what brought you, because your your earlier book focused on um, Native identity and history and narrative in, uh, in Seattle, where I'm currently located. So what, what brought you to writing um, urban Native history?
0: Well, it was really clear to me when I was in graduate school that there was this huge gap in the literature that, you know, despite the fact that more than half of Indigenous people in the United States live in urban places and don't live on reservations. Um, Very few scholars had ever looked at that. Um, There was a little bit of stuff on the social history of Native peoples in cities, um, but very little on the relationship between urbanity and indigeneity more generally. And as I say in the opening of Native Seattle, every American city is built on Indian land. So we we have to come to terms with that. And so I was really interested with native Seattle to show not how um, urban and native histories are mutually exclusive because that's how they're often talked about. Um, but in fact, they're mutually constitutive. They actually create each other in conversation. And then in terms of, of indigenous London, and I came to that when native Seattle came out in 2007, my then husband who was a Londoner jokingly said, why don't you write a book like that about London now? And I, I kind of, laughed it off at first, and then I thought, wow, nobody has actually tried to write an indigenous-centered history of the so-called center of empire.
1: And it's, it's interesting that you say in which these stories of urbanity and stories of indigeneity mutually serve to constitute each other, that in, in this book, um, it seems that not only are you telling this story of indigenous people in this, this heart of empire, as you said, and in this urban space, but also this story of London within a broader Indigenous diaspora, um, which goes to this yep. concept of the Red Atlantic, um, which draws on, on, on work that you've done, work that, uh, that Dr. Jace Weaver has done, and, and you've been a part of creating this, this new discourse. Can you talk about what, what it means to, as we, we see Indigenous people um, functioning both in traditional homelands, but also abroad as a result of, of contact um, and engagement with that um where do you see the place about yeah.
0: discourse yeah i mean it, in some ways the red atlantic scholarship which is just beginning to emerge as you say with with the work of people like jace weaver and and some others um really takes its cues in a lot of ways from the black atlantic um, which is a more established scholarship that really looks at the ways in which the atlantic was not a space that was constituted co- constituted sorry um, by sim- By solely European descent peoples that in fact the Atlantic was woven together by the experiences of African descent peoples as well, um, cultural exchanges and so on um, there has been it 's been slower to pick up um, The the so-called Red Atlantic, the experience of Native peoples in that space, um, for a lot of reasons that that if we had more time, we could probably talk about. But I think, you know, one of the things that's really happening in Indigenous studies right now is a growing trend of talking about um, Indigenous people kind of, quote, where they don't belong, right? Off the reserve, outside of traditional homelands, um, in cosmopolitan spaces and so on. There's a growing trend of that kind of scholarship,
1: and it seems that that, in addition to telling stories um, about Indians in unexpected places, one of those unexpected places is this role of of the observer in a space like London, where to such a great extent um, indigenous people were brought in to be observed um, by the by the colonial subject and, and and reframing that and you talk a lot about in your throughout the book about the way in which indigenous people perceive. Um, issues of poverty, gender, violence, ritual, um, could you talk a little bit about, about what it meant to reposition the, um, this story from, from the lens of these these native travelers and and maybe connected to that, the ways in which you, you cho- chose these stories? And chose the methodology to, to, to research um, what is in some ways an oral history, but one so embedded in this documentary past.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's um, one of the things that was really interesting about this project is that in the beginning, I thought I was going to be uncovering a hidden history of the city, a long history of writing about hidden Londons within London, um, going back all the way to the late 18th century. And that's what I thought I would be uncovering, but very quickly it occurred to me, or I realized through looking at the archive, that these people that I'm writing about are hugely visible in their days. Um, They're celebrities in many cases, many accounts of them, and so on. So in fact, it wasn't that this was a hidden history. It's a history that's kind of largely been forgotten, certainly in London, not by the communities themselves, but by people in the center of the empire. Um, and so that was that was kind of where I started with this project, was the sense that it would be hidden and then it turned out it wasn't at all. Um, and really trying to, um, you know, look at how Indigenous people were observed by Londoners and how um, issues going on in London like class violence or the rise of kind of the gin craze and alcohol, um, widespread alcoholism in the city, how that shaped the way that Londoners saw um, indigenous people who traveled there, um, in terms of wow, these people are more sober than our our Londoners are, or um, you know, their their gender relations are changing just as ours are, and our anxieties about women kind of becoming uppity. But look at these indigenous women who are really powerful who who come here. Um, all those things are kind of constellated, uh, um, and that's that's what I think when we're talking about you know the the so called Red Atlantic. It's that kind of constellated sense of places being connected through these kinds of dynamics
1: and you bring together so many of these stories um, that that each of them have this tremendous depth and nuance um, to to forward these certain tropes of that observation but maybe for our listeners if you could share one one of the stories of these native travelers that sort of encapsulates um, some of these broad themes
0: yeah i mean one of the best known examples is Um, uh, four men who were referred to as the four kings. They were, um, of course not kings, that's a European term, but they were three Mohawk um, emissaries and one Mohican emissary, so an allied um, community, an allied nation. And they came in 1710 to London to cement political, military, economic, and religious alliances with the British crown. Um, and their um, speech that they gave to Queen Anne, who was on the throne at the time, was, was reprinted and spread all, all around the city in this new kind of developing print culture. Um, and they were, um, you know, taverns renamed themselves the Four Kings. And they were just, you know, again, huge celebrities. Um, and, you you know, they there's a, a sense in which Um, there's a lot of looking going on in both directions. For example, they're taken to see Macbeth in theater. Um, the audience riots because they want to look at the, the four Kings. So the four Kings are put on stage. They can watch and be watched while they're watching. Right. And then, um, so there's all these, um, you know, London here is being drawn into the the Mohawk or Haudenosaunee um, larger political world, um, and then two years later, there's a gang uh, uh, outbreak of gang violence in London, and um, one of the most feared gangs calls themselves the Mohawks, and so you can see these ideas about so-called savagery um, that are being kind of emplaced into the urban context um, through these encounters. So people are seeing Londoners are seeing themselves refracted through indigenous visitors. And that's, you know, in the early 18th century.
1: So on the flip side of what Londoners are drawing from from these processes of refraction by looking at um, native travelers, what, what sort of London did these native travelers bring home? Um, how were they received? How did, how did that knowledge play a role in, in future careers, communities? Mm-hmm.
0: It, it's quite diverse. I mean, some people came home and were not believed. Um, And in fact, lost social standing. There's a couple examples, for example, of um, Maori people from what we now call New Zealand, mostly, um, who came back from the early 19th century visits and were not believed and in fact lost social standing. Um, But then there were other people like Cherokee delegations who came home um, to their territories and really were able to kind of mobilize their time in London as a a source of political power and authority. So, you know, throughout the book, there's a real sense of diversity um, of experience um, that people came back and and also to remember that there were a lot of cases where people didn't make it home either.
1: So I guess a similar question to to how how these individuals were viewed by their communities in that time. How have it And you you touch upon this near the end of the book. How have indigenous people, both um, the smaller indigenous populations that have continued to live in London, um, particularly the Maori community you speak to, um, and also indigenous communities who are coming either for similar purposes to those who came before, for similar diplomatic purposes, or for the purposes of commemorating this history. Um, How have have indigenous communities experienced um, indigenous London today?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that that I try to really talk about in the final chapter of the book, which is about memory, is the idea that London has largely forgotten its imperial past. It's certainly forgotten its indigenous past. Um, and for indigenous peoples, though, London remains vital um, in the sense of um, that's where the crown lives. And so for Indigenous nations who want to continue to assert that nation-to-nation relationship and older treaty um, obligations and so on, London is the place you go because that's where the Crown lives. Um, And then in addition to that, there's been a real pattern um, in the late 20th and early 21st century of Indigenous travelers coming to London um, in part to commemorate their dead, the people who didn't make it home. Um, So people from the Mohegan Nation of Connecticut, people from um, Aboriginal Australia, um, and other places um, have come to commemorate those who didn't return um, and then finally as you mentioned there is a there's a you know good-sized Maori community in London today and one of the things that I heard in the interviews that I did um, in that community um, was that in fact you know a lot of young people come to London on a two-year work visa um, and um, in doing so they actually engage with Maori uh, cultural practices in the city, they engage with Taunga, which are Maori cultural belongings that are in museums there. Um, and in fact, they, they often express the idea that they become almost more Maori in London, and then they take that home with them. So it's it's quite an ironic kind of outcome in many ways.
1: Speaking of those interviews, one thing very interesting about your book is the way in which you balance these older documentary sources that give the story of earlier indigenous travelers in centuries past. Near the end of the book, you transition to more of this living history to oral interviews with current residents and current travelers from indigenous nations to London. Um, In the last chapter, you yourself become a a subject and you speak in the first person at some points. I'm curious what that transition and that balancing of different sources was like for you. Um, At one point you say that doing ethical indigenous research and global indigenous research are somehow at odds. And I wonder if that connects to the way in which you've brought in both current living populations and older documentary ones.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges with this project, and I talk about this in the early part of the book, is that, um, you know, there's a model now for doing ethical research with indigenous communities that involves a lot of community directed research and involves really building relationships. And that's really difficult to do with a project that covers, you know. 35, 40 Indigenous nations, um, covers more than 500 years, there's sort of no way to follow that model and do this kind of really big work. And by big, I don't mean more important, I just mean big in terms of scale. Um, and so um, that's that's something that I, I just I have to live with with this project. And what I'm hoping happens is that I've carved out some kind of new territory, and then other people will be able to go deeper into those kind of relational research processes um, and build on that, because I do believe this is a, a collective process that we're engaged in as, as scholars. Um, but in terms of working with the people... I interviewed. Um, that was definitely about building relationships, and those people had um, the right of redaction over what I wrote. They saw what I wrote. Um, they sort of gave the thumbs up, and so on. And I think, in you know, in the cases that I worked with, were quite keen to have their work and their communities really highlighted in the book, and and really saw themselves as part of a much much longer history. Um, of Of journeying to the city and in some cases making a home there,
1: you mentioned new directions in scholarship that might take off from from a book like this, and I wanted to and i don 't want to harp on this too much because it's it 's a, a side trajectory from your main story, but at the end, you talk about how um, how the experience of colonialism and experience and encounter with indigenous people has reshaped in which it, ways in which contemporary british scholars are looking at their own pre-Roman, um, indigenous past. Can you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, I had to clarify, I have had to clarify along the way to a lot of people that this book is not about the Celts, right? That indigenous London is not about ancient British people. Um, and I think the cover makes that clear, but, um, but there is a, an epilogue kind of punchline to the book, really, where um, in a, muse- a couple of museum exhibits, you can really see Londoners trying to make sense out of their really deep past, which we could maybe think of as an Indigenous past. I mean, that's a debatable term, perhaps. It's one I use. Um, uh They're thinking of their really ancient past, but again, that's almost always refracted through how they're thinking at the time about Indigenous peoples who are alive in the world today. Um, And so this new museum exhibit called London Before London is a very deeply humanizing exhibition exhibition. Um, that really tries to capture the intellectual, social, spiritual lives of these, you know, very, very ancient peoples. And the the curators who worked on that were really influenced by what indigenous peoples are speaking back to museums today, saying, you know, we are fully human people. And in fact, we want to curate our own stories. Um, And so there was a sense in which um, instead of older museum exhibits that really kind of highlighted the ancient Britons as kind of savage pre-human figures um, that you can get a sense that around the world, indigenous peoples have spoken back to museums and that's percolated all the way back to the center of empire. So the Londoners are seeing their own deep past in a new way.
1: Speaking of uncovering um, the past, if I could ask about one figure who's been so covered over with Euro American mythmaking that it can be difficult to, to get to her personal and to her indigenous um, experience and reality. I'm talking about the figure of Pocahontas. Can you talk about how she experienced London um, and how contemporary London experienced her and has remembered her since um, and how she's been remembered in her own Powhatan culture?
0: Yeah. um, She, if, if, when I'm talking about this project with people, she's the only one that people have ever heard of and that can um and, and so in some ways i wanted to kind of submerge her a little bit and bring forward other stories because she's the expected one but she was i mean i can't avoid the fact that she she was um again a massively popular figure um in 1616 16, and 17 when she was in london um she was seen by the virginia company as an amazing pr tool to show look these people can be civilized and so on um which really turned around the 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 prospects of the Virginia company, but she was also part of basically a reconnaissance mission from her Powhatan nation, um, to see who are these people that are coming to our shores. Um, and, and so on. Um, she, you know, she dies in, in London or on the way home from London and she's buried in Gravesend to the east of the city. And, uh, she remains kind of a figure in the city's consciousness, just a sort of a subtle figure. But the way she's often remembered in London is as this tragic ghostly figure and as a very lonely figure. She's always portrayed as being on her own, um, being... um, Yeah, a tragic figure and kind of the about the loss of indigeneity, the disappearance of indigenous peoples and so on. And I read her quite differently, as do um, the descendant communities from the Powhatan nation. They see her as um, part of a larger collective story. Um, They see her as um, helping establish um, nation to nation relations um, with the crown. Um, And they see her as an ancestor um, more than this kind of tragic figure. Um, and then, of course, we have um, Disney, right? Um, and the, there's a terrible... Um, everyone knows the main Pocahontas movie, there's a terrible sequel called Pocahontas, The New World, where she goes to London. It's it's just abysmally bad. Uh, and she doesn't die in the story, so it's, it's completely fabricated. But... Um, that's kind of, you know, where she fits in. And, and she does get used in this kind of multicultural way that I don't think really speaks to the, what we should have as a critique of colonialism, but also a, a commitment to talking about indigenous survivance at the same time.
1: So you mentioned the way in which the Virginia company used Pocahontas as this PR tool, which seems to bring up um, this other theme in which indigenous people are used by certain stakeholders in London to advance their own imperial aims. Um, And I'm thinking about later in the book, when you talk about an anxiety um, about the suburbs and a weakening of British masculinity and how indigenous people are held up as models of, of manhood, but specifically to strengthen British men in the suburbs to continue to engage in the, Colonial enterprise and colonial violence. Can you speak a little bit to that?
0: Sure. Um, in the late 19th and early 20th century, London becomes suburban. Um, it's a new kind of city, and there is a growing anxiety among Londoners about what does this mean. Our our men are becoming kind of soft. They all work as as um, they all work in offices, and they they take omnibuses to and from the suburbs. And the suburbs are becoming very feminized, and all this. And what does that mean for the empire? This is the height of empire, and um, so one of the answers to that crisis of masculinity is sport. Um, particularly rugby and cricket Um, and rugby and cricket are also being used throughout the empire to kind of discipline both imperial and local indigenous bodies Um, and so what i look at are um, what happens when you get a maori rugby team or an aboriginal australian cricket team and they come to london thousands of people turn out to watch them and then sometimes they win what does that mean um, for the prospects of the empire. Um, and so they're really interesting moments where the empire kind of comes, comes to the center. The empire strikes back, I suppose. Um, and, um, and it's in a new kind of city. So this is as much an urban story as it is an indigenous story, um, as well. And so it's, and it's a place where, and and there is this kind of thread throughout the book, I hope, of, um, where gender really matters. Um, and particularly in this case, masculinity and the anxieties that emerge out of particular forms of imperial masculin- masculinity, masculinity, which are embedded in the urban fabric.
1: Which which goes certainly to to the differing Powhatan and English views of a figure like Pocahontas and her power, um, or the queens of Hawaii that you mentioned. Um, yeah. Speaking of the threads that go through this book, do you feel? Are there, are, are there broad changes that you can trace over these centuries as indigenous people in London become more and more familiar? Um, I, I, it seems that one of them is, is that indigenous people are already coming later in later periods with a strong sense of what London is or what London should be, often yeah. often being dispelled of that. Um, it seems to especially come out with, with some of the more Christian indigenous figures um, how, does, how does Indigenous London change over the centuries? I think it
0: moves away from being explicitly political, kind of. Hmm, this is a hard question. Um, in the sense that as settler nation states like Canada, the U.S., New Zealand, and Australia become more established, Indigenous people are really marginalized in those states. Um, and so you see fewer and fewer explicitly political delegations, with some important exceptions. Um, and you start to see more of people coming as performers, and of course those performances are also inherently political. Um, but um, you start to see more of that, and eventually by the 20th century, there are more and more indigenous people simply coming as tourists, um, and and so on as well. And I don't talk very much about that in the book. That's more just you know, from talking to people about, you know, their grandfather who came in the 1930s or whatever. But um, yeah, that's one of the big changes. But I think almost more importantly, there are some continuities. And I would say one of the important continuities, whenever we do have a sense of what indigenous travelers thought of the city, there are kind of two threads that that carry all the way through. One is a critique of the ecology of the city. The city is a filthy place. Um, It's um, smoky, It's dark, um, and it's not clear how these people feed themselves. None of them can hunt. None of them can fish. There's nothing to hunt or fish. And that's, in fact, a really salient issue for most of London's history. Um, How is the city going to feed itself? So indigenous people are picking up on that. Um, And then the other is a really trenchant critique of um, the class inequalities of the city. Um, There's this wonderful passage from the 19th century, I think it's an Ojibwe traveler who says these houses are so big, there's nobody at the windows. And the sense of so much wealth accumulated in the city. At the same time, there are people living in abject poverty. Um, Pauline Johnson or Wage, um, a Mohawk poet and writer, she says, you know, how dare they send missionaries to us when they treat their own poor this way? You know, and so there's that kind of indictment of city and really a British society. Um, and and I, would, I would say that's kind of a theme going all the way back to the, really, the 17th century.
1: Um, Your mention of the guy in Wage brings up uh, another question I had. Um, you talk early in the book about her encounter with Joe Capilano that leads to, to in part, to her m- moving to Vancouver um, and becoming a very important um, figure, both in Indigenous and in um, in Canadian um Euro-Canadian culture there, both then and 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 since. So I'm I'm curious about her story, but I'm also curious about the ways you were talking before about about what Indigenous people brought back to London to their own nations. But how does London serve to connect Indigenous nations?
0: Yeah, that was something that I was hoping to find more of. To be honest, to find Indigenous people meeting each other in the city, and and to be honest, there's not in earlier periods there's not a lot of that. Dugayo and Wage's um, encounter with Apluk, who's also known as Joe Capilano, um, their encounter in 1906 is a little bit unusual um, in the sense that you have indigenous people from different nations actually kind of coming together. But I would say over the course, particularly of the 20th century, as a global indigenous rights movement has emerged, which we can really see happening right now, for example, with um, Idle No More and the Dakota Access Pipeline water protectors, and so on, we can see an international movement that has arisen um, over the course of the 20th century. Um, And so Indigenous people are speaking around London in many cases. So the journeys to London become increasingly globalized, even if people from different nations aren't necessarily meeting there. Um, But I would say, you know, in the last few years, there have been more and more... um, Gatherings, conferences, and so on between Indigenous nations in London, um, where people are meeting each other, and I—that's—I w- would say something really in the last twenty years or so. So it's—it's it's still a meeting place, but it, maybe not in the way it's always
1: been. That's fascinating. Um, yeah. Going back to to these uh, these economic and ecological critiques that Indigenous people levied against. Um, against London. Um, I'm particularly interested in, and this story has been told on, on this podcast before in conjunction with a, uh, an episode regarding a, a book on the history of, of native Dartmouth, um, but the figure of Samuel Ockham, who not only re- privately records these critiques, but, uh, but actually lectures and sermonizes about them to, to English audiences, um, can you talk both about him and also the way in which religion, both um, indigenous religious paradigms and Christianity, function both for Occam and for other native travelers?
0: Sure. Yeah, Samson Occam's an interesting figure because he's the first one where we get an unvarnished first person voice. You know, he keeps journals of his time. This is 1766. um, And he's coming to raise money for what he thinks is going to be um, a school for indigenous uh, young men. And it, as you say, becomes Dartmouth. Um, So that's a bit frustrating for him. But in some ways, you know, he's seen by a lot of people who watch him give these sermons and so on. He's hugely popular. Um, They see him as, you know, the kind of civilized savage, right? This is proof that Christianity can you know, um, bring the quote, these people into the present. Um, but for him, he's there also as a land rights activist, you know, his people's, uh, the Mohegan people's lands are under assault by colonists and he's there trying, um, against the wishes of the people who brought him to pursue that land claims case while he, and, uh, so he's, he's a really complicated figure. Um, and again and again, you know, throughout indigenous history, we can see people who are supposedly, um, you know words like enculturated or um, whatever. Who are in fact important activists um, and doing really important indigenous work, whether it's in a place like London or elsewhere. And Sampson Ockham's a great example of that.
1: If I could shift gears for a second to the format of the book, beyond the the basic narrative of Indigenous London, you use two stylistic devices, both of which are very interesting and both of which make this work feel very unique. Um, The first of these you call interludes, um, between the chapters, each focusing on some artifact that has stood at the intersection of indigenous and English Londoner use. Um, Can you speak a little bit about these interludes and what role they play in your work? Yeah, these are,
0: um, these six interludes, um, are, I've been started calling them the soul of the book in many ways. Um, they, you know, it, it goes back to a form of writing that I did when I was much younger and now I'm in a space, you know, I have tenure, I can take some more risks in a, in a, um, scholarly sense. And, um, so I wanted to return to that kind of writing because I wanted to kind of ritualize my writing a little bit. Um, and, um, And free verse poetry, and in this case built out of archival fragments mostly, um, was a way to kind of do that. Um, And I also wanted to um, kind of short circuit the arm's length, past tense, sort of scholarly angle on the past, because they're written in the present tense, they're meant to kind of um, connect with the whole reader in a sense. Um and they're also meant to really articulate the costs of colonialism um, as they as they are expressed in these particular objects, a mirror, a hat factory, um, a statue, and so on. Um, I really wanted, you know, the, the chapters really focus on the agency of indigenous peoples, um, but I wanted to always remind the reader, you know, this story has profound costs. Um, and so in many ways these are kind of the soul of the book
1: yeah and they seem to reflect this and i think the phrase you use at one point is the intimacy of encounter
0: yeah and and i wanted to really kind of bring it down to the ground level and say look at this single object the single obsidian mirror from the the Mexica or Aztec or Nahua people that ends up in the hands of a British astrologer who's the first person to use the phrase the British Empire in print like from the beginning it's already completely bound up with indigenous history and when when I sort of quote discovered that mirror at the British Museum I thought that's it I need to I need to talk about the Aztec obsidian God. I need to talk about the angels that this astrologer claims to be speaking to and try to bring these very different worlds into kind of collision with each other um, and talk about what does that mean? And on a very human affective level.
1: And I think that that makes a good segue into, to another unique feature at the end of the book that these, these markers in contemporary London, whether they're an exhibit at the, uh, at the British museum that I'm sure is seen by millions each day without any... I don't know if it's... Is, is it marked? Um, is its Mexica Connect origin marked? Yes. Okay. Um, but for so many other sites throughout the city that are not... Um, that are seen by, by Londoners or tourists as part of this very exclusively English imperialist or, or English story, um, you incorporate at the end of the book a few suggested um, walking tours. Uh, I just mm-hmm. want to know... What role do these play for you in, in telling the book for, for either those who may take them up or those who may read these as an additional part of the narrative from their armchairs wherever?
0: Yeah. Well, you know, the, my first book, Native Seattle, included an atlas at the back um, that included 127 place names in the city. I worked with a linguist and built on the knowledge that had been shared by elders around those places. And, and I'm a very much a place-based historian. Um, that's how I think, and so I wanted to do something akin to that with London. And London has a long history of walking tours. That's one of the ways that people engage with the city. Um, you know, Jack the Ripper tours, Shakespeare tours, sure. all this kind of stuff. So it's it's a little bit of the, the sort of the embodied dialect of the city, I suppose. And so I wanted to um, offer these. And and one of the and I've actually given them a number of times in the city to different groups, including visiting delegations of indigenous activists. And um, it's, you know, when you're in a place like Vancouver or Seattle, and you're trying to kind of imagine the indigenous landscape of these places, they've been so transformed um, by colonialism that often it's quite hard to kind of see anything. Yeah. And then you go to a place like London and, and, you know, it's sites like St. Paul's Cathedral or Trafalgar Square that are the sites of Hawaiian history or Mohawk history or Maori history. Because indigenous travelers were also were often close to the sites of power, which are considered sites of British heritage. And so you have um, a really different kind of landscape that's visible.
1: Um, Yeah. And that, that map of Seattle in a transformed version by the Burke Museum is now in a frame on my wall. Oh, awesome!
0: Yeah, yeah the Waterlands project—it's a great project. Yeah, and
1: it's been very exciting to see the ways in which the city has has taken hold of it and reimagining the waterfront to ensure um, a greater respect for treaty rights. Well, on that subject, I'm curious if, on a broad level, what sort of differences you saw in writing this book um, compared to your last book about Native Seattle.
0: Well, one of the big ones was the relational piece. I was able to work quite closely with local tribes um, with native Seattle who, you know, reviewed the whole manuscript and so on. So there was that difference in terms of the process of the book. Um, And also I was dealing with a city that sells itself using native imagery. You know, its name, uh, totem poles, the Seahawks logo, all that kind of stuff. Um, It already had but built in readership. You know, a lot of people in Seattle may not actually know any native people, but they think that that's relevant. Um, Whereas in London, people don't have the faintest clue about this history. Um, So that was a really big difference. And I really sense that on the ground um, in London where people say, oh, you mean red Indians? And I think, oh my God, I can't believe you just used that phrase, right? Um, Because there's just a level of almost total um, amnesia about this there, whereas in Seattle, you know everybody knows that in, that native peoples are relevant to the story of the region, um, and so it's a much easier
1: sell in some ways um, yeah, I guess I guess building on that, given there's given recent laws pa- passed in Washington to ensure that contemporary indigenous history is taught in the schools, do you see, do yeah. you see a place in which which your scholarship in this book and, and similar red Atlantic work might be implemented on the uh, the other side of the pond, um, and that this education might find its way into uh, popular consciousness again.
0: Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, the book is the book is written with a broad audience in mind, um, you know, sort of an educated lay audience, and so I'm hoping that it will sort of change the consciousness. My one worry about that is that it's going to get folded into a really kind of facile multiculturalism, that you know, this kind of post-imperial, post-colonial. Um, kumbaya (laughs) multiculturalism, that this is just going to tick a new box in that. And I'm a little nervous about that. And I I hope I've written in a way that inoculates against that. But um, yeah, I mean, I I would like to see um, Londoners take this up and say, what does this mean that our city has this imperial history? What does it mean for us? And perhaps even uncover new stories that I missed
1: Great. So as we near the end of, um, of the podcast, I just want to note again that the book is Indigenous London, um, Native Travelers at the Heart of Empire. I urge everyone to pick up a copy. There are so many stories we didn't have time to go into today. But I just want to ask, um, what's what's next for you? What, what are you working on now? What directions are you moving in?
0: So, yeah, I'm, I'm moving in a very different direction. I, you know, this book – I was trained in the history of the 19th and 20th century American West. So in, in many ways, I have no business writing about London. So um, now I'm coming back to my roots. Literally, I'm working on a project about my hometown, which is about an hour from Seattle. And it's a meditation on um, historical trauma and landscape. And it's about four terrible things that happened in that town. The town's called Auburn today. Um, it's one of the outermost and poorest suburbs of Seattle. Um and so it's a treaty war in the 1850s with massacres on both sides. Um, it's the destruction of a river around 1900. The Japanese American internment in 1942. It's a very big Japanese community there. And then in the 1980s, it becomes the center of the US's largest serial killer case, the Green River Killer, uh, Gary Ridgway, and who's in prison now. Um, and it's about these four events and how they're remembered or silenced. And then I'm going to interweave it with my own family's history of westward migration to that town, which involves a lot of intergenerational violence. And um, the book's going to be called Slaughtertown Town because Auburn was originally called Slaughter when it was founded by settlers. And so it's sort of provides the metaphor, really. Um, and what I'm interested in, really, are the violences that are at the heart of American history and how they leave marks on the land around us and how the land actually holds these traumas. Um, and so that's the kind of thing I'm working on next. It's I think it's going to be a fairly short book. Um, it's going to be, as I say, partially a memoir, um, which is new kind of writing for me. So I'm in no rush with it. I'm gonna kind of coast on the London book here for a little bit. So
1: Yeah, you've definitely put the work in. Um and it's it's interesting that you mentioned the way in which the land has held that trauma. I still can't get over the fat the the what feels like on some level is a very visible and in some level a very erased history of the Pew Fairground um near to Seattle, which was yes. which was a a, a relocation or I, I don't know the actual term for it, but it was a gathering point for, for deportation to the camps.
0: Yes, that's right. Yeah, it was, they, were, they put um, you know, neighbors of my family in hold, animal holding pens before sending them off to camps in the interior of the country. And, um, and that left huge scars on, on the town um, that are still there. You know, it was for a very long time an unspoken thing. Um, but it's now part of the city's history, but it's still something that I think people wrestle with the legacy of it. And I think it's certainly relevant to today's politics. Uh, as we think about, you know, the demonization of, of particular groups within the United States, there's a lesson there that I'm not sure that the United States has learned.
1: I guess, yeah, I guess moving to, to, to places for the United States to learn. Do you feel that there are that there are places like, London um, in the U.S. That unlike somewhere like Seattle, where despite, despite in some ways the erasure of of native people, certainly have maintained this important, this very visible native um, narrative. Are there places that you feel that a story closer to Indigenous London still has to be told? Whether on the east Absolutely. coast, where there is this, yeah.
0: Absolutely. And those projects are in the works. Um, there's a really brilliant young scholar named Kyle Mays, for example, who is working on an indigenous history of Detroit um, that really looks at the intersections of indigenous and African-American histories. Um, a really interesting project. Um, there's a, another scholar named Joe Jenaton Palawa, um, who is working on an indigenous history of Washington, D.C., which is a very similar story in many ways to London as a, you know, as kind of an imperial capital, really, um, lots of delegations and so on. So these works are starting to emerge. Um, and, you know, I think native Seattle played a role in kind of starting that ball rolling. And so there are all these new kinds of stories emerging, and I'm hoping that the London book will inspire somebody to do an indigenous Paris, you know, or an Inuit history of Copenhagen or, um, you know, these other kinds of colonial and imperial spaces. And so I'm hoping this kind of lays out some ground. You know, the the um, Maori literary scholar Alice Tipunga Somerville, she once said when she was visiting here at UBC, she said, you know, our job as scholars, indigenous and non-indigenous, is to make the indigenous world bigger um, politically, legally, culturally, intellectually, spatially, temporally. And that's, you know, the spirit behind this book is to try to do that and and do that in solidarity with and in in coalition with indigenous scholars um, who are also trying to make that world bigger as well.
1: I don't think there is a better note to to end on. Thank you so much for your time, Cole.
0: You bet. It's been really fun talking with you.
1: Thank you again for joining myself and Dr. Cole Thrush on this episode of New Books in Native American Studies. Indigenous London, out from Yale University Press, is available at Amazon and other retailers. I enjoyed it greatly, and I hope you do too. Thank you.